0: For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're discussing simple and smart investing with J.L. Collins.
1: Yeah, Joel. Today, we are fortunate enough to be speaking with the one and only J.L. Collins. J.L. is an expert in the arena of investing and is the author of the book, The Simple Path to Wealth. In his book and on his sites, J.L. writes about how truly straightforward and simple it is to invest your money in order to achieve financial independence. Not surprisingly, he is also considered by many to be the godfather of the financial independence movement We are pumped to discuss all things related to investing in the markets as well as topics like buying a new car and raising financially savvy kids so jl thank you for joining us
2: thank you matt thank you uh joel i'm i'm pumped to be with you and and honored that you'd ask me
0: awesome well we're pumped too i know our listeners are excited to hear from you as well and jl every episode matt and i we we drink a craft beer on the show because We really like craft beer, and we make it a point to prioritize something that we care about in the here and now, also while saving and investing well for the future. Today on the show, we're drinking Bourbon County Stout by Goose Island. Uh, Listener Alex sent it our way. So I want to know from you first, JL, what is your kind of splurge uh, that you're willing to spend a lot of money on right now? What's your kind of craft beer equivalent?
2: So wait a second, why didn't you send me a, a, a bottle of this beer?
0: <laughs> I'll get on Alex, because he sent this one to us, that's that's really on him.
2: I, I'm sitting here drinking ginger tea, and you're drinking beer?
0: Oh, that's a big bummer. <laughs> I feel bad for you.
2: <laughs> you know, splurges, I, I, I don't think in those terms, actually. We followed this path for a long time, and we being my wife and myself, and we're fortunate that we're financially secure. And there's not too much that if we want it, we can't uh, afford. And, but the caveat there is that there's not a whole lot that we really want. We're kind of minimalist by nature. We're nomadic. So I guess our indulgences are we spend money on travel, but that's the same as somebody spending money on living in a, uh, you know, living in a permanent place. And so we probably eat out in restaurants more often than, than most people. We did just buy a new car. But again, I don't see that as a splurge necessarily. We—it's pretty basic car. It's a Subaru Forester, and we bought the base model because I like things simple. And I suppose if I bought a Lamborghini, I'd consider it a splurge. But <laughs> you know, at, at this point in my life, buying a, a base model Subaru Forester is well, like forty years ago when I was when I was buying a five hundred dollar Plymouth. Yeah, it's like,
0: I guess it makes sense. It's equivalent at this point to you because you've been saving and investing so well for so long. And we actually have a couple questions for you about your new car purchase that we're going to ask you later on in the show. But at the beginning, Jill, I want to ask you about kind of jobs that you've worked over the years. We were shocked to find out that not only the number of different jobs that you've had over the years, but the variety of different industries that you've been a part of. So what was your favorite job growing up? And what's one of the best lessons that you've learned from working in a bunch of different careers?
2: So I'm, I'm not sure if you're referring to my jobs uh, uh, when I was very young in school and, and putting myself through college or my professional jobs. Most of my professional career was spent in the magazine publishing business. My favorite job of all of those, I put myself through college taking down uh, elm trees that had uh, Dutch elm disease. Oh, interesting. Back in those days, I could make enough money over the summer to put myself through college. and It was hard physical labor. It was outdoors. Of course, I was young and strong in those days. And I guess one of my favorite stories from that time the guy who ran the crew that I was on was, a. Uh, of course, you have to remember, I'm 19 years old at this point. And he was a grizzled old guy, he was, which is to say is probably 20 years younger than I am now. But he was, <laughs> Sal Nigro was in his, probably his 50s, and, and he was a tough old southern guy. And early, early on, in the first couple of weeks, we'd taken down a tree, and we were cleaning up afterwards, and I was sweeping a driveway. And Sal saw me, and he didn't like the way I was sweeping the driveway, so he came over. And my nickname was Professor because I was the only college kid they'd ever hired. And he grabbed the broom away from me, and he said to me, Professor, when you go through life, always know that there's a right way to do something and a wrong way to do something, and I'm going to show you the right right way to sweep this driveway. And he did, and I've always remembered that. And everything in life, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And it's worth figuring out what the right way is.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very cool. So, I mean, I'm curious too, JL, like what was it about that specific job that you're drawn to? I mean, just was it kind of being outside, being outdoors, working with your body?
2: Yeah, exactly. It was very, you know, again, I'm 19, 20 in, in those days. I, I'm young, very strong and it made me stronger. It was physical. You know, I like the, the guys I was working with were very different than the people I went to college with they didn't have a lot of education uh, and they were from the South and they had migrated up to the North. Uh, this was a crew that migrated with the seasons. And, and uh, so they were Southern guys and I was a Northern guy and I was a college kid. And, and, uh, you know, they were, they were working physical jobs from the moment they got out of high school. If they finished high school when it was, uh, uh, it was fun, and it was a, a, an interesting human engagement for on, yeah. on all sides. So it was a great time. I, I did it for three years, and loved every minute of it.
1: Very cool. Yeah, I can imagine that there is a, a variety of life experiences within that crew.
2: <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. There's some there's some interesting tales. <laughs> well, Jay, let's let's talk
1: some about money here. You, you started your your blog with the hopes that it would help your daughter. Learn how to invest well, and also just how to live life well, and it has certainly helped a lot of people. Uh, but Joel and I are curious: like, how has your daughter responded to the things that you've written? Um, share some about her response to the financial education that you gave her.
2: Yeah, so I had uh, when Jessica was very young, I, I made the mistake of pushing this stuff too hard and too soon, and I had the effect of really turning her off to it. But I kept trying, because if you, if you can understand money, money is the most powerful tool we have in, in this modern world of ours. And if you understand it, your life is just a whole lot easier and a whole lot richer, richer being in terms of money, as well as being just a richer, broader life because of the opportunities. So it was very important to me to convey this to her. And I remember one time she was home from college, and this is after years of trying to have these conversations. And I started again and she said, you know, dad, I know this is important. I get it. I just don't want to have to think about it all the time. And a little light bulb went off in my head and I thought, you know, that's most people. I mean, most people I think understand that money is important and that mastering it is important, but we're the weirdos. I mean, people (laughs) who, who obsess about this stuff and love it are, are, we're the odd ones out. And normal people have more important things to do with their life and so i started writing a series of letters to her to simplify it so she'd have the information she needed as efficiently as possible and that it would take up as little of her time as possible and she could go on and, and live a productive life doing things that mattered to her and then somebody suggested that i put it on the blog and I thought that'd be a great way to archive the information. I never dreamed that it would grow into the audience that it now has. And and I never dreamed that it would impact as many people as as it has. And that's very gratifying, but that was never my, my goal was never to start a successful blog and, and grow it into an international audience. I just, as I tell people, I have only ever tried to convince one person <laughs> about this stuff and that's my daughter. And, and she, by the way, is now convinced. Uh, she's <laughs> nice. 27, and she's on the FI path, and and she gets it. And and my book evidently was a lot of help to her because she could absorb it in her at her own time and her own pace. Well,
0: that's great. I I think what you're saying too is that the way that we communicate some of these things, because as Uber financial nerds, you know, Matt and I think about this stuff a lot. JL, you think about this stuff obviously a lot, and most people out there aren't thinking along those terms so it's it's really incumbent upon us to make it easier for people to understand the the way they approach money and so that's really our goal here and i know you've done a great job with that as well i want to ask you another question on the topic of of kids matt and i we've got small children uh, he's matt's got four kids i've got three kids uh, but you have re- raised a full-fledged adult so uh, we <laughs> want to know like what have you and your wife learned over the years about raising a money responsible kid and also, are there any uh, tips that you guys have found, any, any things that worked for you both to get on the same page as you were raising Jessica together?
2: Well, as I, as I just admitted, I, I probably didn't do a very good job when she was young of introducing her to money. And, and as I say, I pushed it too hard and too soon. More broadly, I, I would say my observation with kids is I, I, th- I think that parents really have very little uh, ability or control of making their kid great or, or good. I think that's internal in the kid. I think parents have an enormous amount of ability to mess them up. And unfortunately that happens too often. And so I guess my, my advice would be a light touch works. I mean, the best thing I did with Jessica was for the most part, I, I stood back and, and, and let her run. And, uh, and let her blossom and didn't get in the way. And, uh, sometimes doing nothing is the most powerful thing you can do. It's kind of like investing, you know, you, you, you get a couple of things right in the beginning and then you just step back and leave it alone and don't, don't keep tinkering with it. Don't keep pushing at it all the time. And it's probably the same with kids. You know, you get the basic things, right? They, they pay much more attention in my experience to what you do than what you say. So. If you're setting the right examples for them, then have a light touch. You know, Jessica has, has, has said to me many times, and my wife used to say that, That you know, she's absorbing more than you realize. And I think in her teenage years, she didn't want to let me see that, you know, as part of keeping me in my place, maybe. Uh, and she did. And as she was older and became more of an adult, we had those conversations. And as when she went off to college and she realized that this wasn't common in the households of her friends. I mean, most of their parents never talked about money to them and they were absolutely clueless about it. And I think she began to value it more, particularly when she realized how much she had absorbed, maybe without even trying, how much more she knew than her peers. So I think that gave her an appreciation of, of what the message was. And then, of course, as she's entered into her career, she sees it more and more clearly. So I think patience and, and going slowly and having a light touch would be the advice I'd offer for what it's worth. No,
0: that's super helpful, JL. Uh, All right. So we really want to get into talking about investing with you and in particular, because your book, The Simple Path to Wealth is one of my personal favorite investing books. So we'll get to some questions on that with you right after the break.
3: Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super-serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best-fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories— Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com.
0: And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big?
1: All right, we are back from the break, and we're here with JL Collins talking about simple and smart investing. Uh, JL, we want to kind of dive into investing in the market now. Um, and we want to know is investing for everyone? Like, I mean, basically, like, who should be doing it? And in your opinion, are there folks who you think shouldn't be investing?
2: Well, it's hard for me to imagine who shouldn't be investing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, how you build wealth, and and wealth is one of the keys to freedom in the society that we live in. Personally, I value freedom more than just about anything else, so I would encourage everybody at all income levels to figure out how to organize their life in such a fashion that they're living on less than they earn and putting that excess to work for them because having your money work for you makes your life a lot better over time.
0: So let's say for for personal finance newbies, you know, a lot of our listeners, they're kind of starting to dig into personal finance for the first time or maybe they just got their first job and they don't really know what a 401k is. Like what are the first things they need to know about investing because it can often seem intimidating right there at the very beginning when you don't know all the terms and you don't really know how it works.
2: Yeah, I think that's tough because it's it's one of those things with where to a certain extent you need to know everything. So from the beginning, and that's that's almost impossible. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're looking at a 401k and trying to decide what to do with it, you have to understand what a 401k is. And you have to understand a little bit about how it's going to impact your tax situation. And then you have to understand a little bit about the investments that your particular 401k is offering you and why some might be good and some not so much. And so I guess my my first piece of advice and and I don't mean this to sound self-serving but find a a blog like mine and read through the stock series or my book The Simple Path to Wealth and read that and perhaps a couple of other things so you get a a more holistic view of what's involved in these things in investing because until you do that you really can't make a good decision on a 401k with just a little bit of information. So I think my first bit of advice would be to step back and educate yourself and then go back to the 401k, Now, having said all of that with a 401k, I would certainly open it right away and I'd begin putting money in it. And if you were confused as to what investment choice to make, I would start with a money market fund, which is just like a bank account. It's not where you want to hold your money long term, but until you figure out which of those things to uh, put your money in, uh, that's a good place to begin holding it. And you certainly want to go into your 401k and capture any match that your company is offering. And a lot of companies uh, offer a match up to a certain percentage that you're in, And that's free money. So if they offer a match up to 4%, say, of whatever you put in, well, that's an immediate 100% return on, on that money. So you definitely want to get that going right away.
1: Oh, yeah, most definitely there. Uh, well, JL, you mentioned as well, like that stock series of posts there on your site. I mean, that's definitely one of the most popular things on your blog. And that series of posts essentially turned into your book, The Simple Path to Wealth. And so, yes, this definitely can seem like a, a big daunting topic, but let's, let's sort of simplify it here a little bit. Why is investing in index funds at the core of your investment advice?
2: So two reasons. One, low cost. And the other is that it's the most powerful way to invest. So study after study over decades have shown that it is extraordinarily difficult for active managers, that is to say, people who are picking individual stocks to outperform the index. And those active managers are expensive. They cost money. And when you add the extra cost on uh, top of, of that, their effort to try to uh, outperform the market becomes even even more difficult. So maybe we ought to take a moment and say, what, is, what does it mean when you say investing in an index fund there's all kinds of different index funds out there, but basically it's a pool of money and a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund that tracks a certain index. Uh, it could be a very specific index like gold and precious metals, or it can be what I favor very broad index. In my case, the total stock market index fund where that invests in every publicly traded, uh, company in the United States. And that's what I recommend. So to back up a little bit to your 401k question, if somebody were to listen to this and say, okay, I know I want to buy that broad based total stock market index fund. How do I find it in my 401k? How do I know which one that is? Well, the easiest thing to do is to find the column that shows the expense ratio, the expense of the, of the fund, and you'll see a percentage anywhere from one point, something, something to point zero something. And they'll, you just run your finger down that column and look for the lowest numbers. And you, those will be the index funds. And then you look at them more closely and there'll only be a couple of them. And you can see, is there a total stock market index fund? And if it is, then if you want to follow my advice, you've, you've found what you're looking for. If there isn't, there's probably an S&P 500 fund, which simply invests in the 500 largest U.S. publicly traded companies, and that works just as well. So there's no reason to obsess over, over the fact you might not have a total stock market fund. An S&P 500 is is fine. And my experience, the vast majority of 401ks offer offer that.
0: That's great advice. And JL, you know, headlines every day are touting new highs in the stock market or great terrors anticipated (laughs) for the stock market. You're going to find both almost every day, at least right now. And uh, two articles in the stock series that you wrote back to back are entitled The Market Always Goes Up and Also Most People Lose Money in the Market. Those two things seem irreconcilable. How can they both be true?
2: (laughs) Well, Warren Buffett... uh... Uh, had a had a comment and I'm trying to remember it exactly and I won't get it exactly but uh, something of the effect of looking back at the last century the 20th century he said you know in in 1900 the market was this is measured by the Dow Jones by the way which is the only index that goes back that far and Buffett said you know the Dow Jones was something like 60 in 1900 and in 2000, it was, I don't know what it was 12,000 or some 11,000, something. He says, how does anybody lose money in a market like that? And the answer is they try to dance in and out of the market. They try to time the market and nobody can successfully do that over time. So if you buy and you hold and you stay the course, then you get to benefit from the fact that while the market's very volatile, it always goes up. If you try to dance in and out, you are likely to hurt yourself. In fact, it's almost guaranteed that you will hurt yourself and you will be left bleeding by the side of the road and you'll lose money. And that's typically how people think of investing in the market. If they don't do their homework. And think, well, I should buy this hot stock or this hot fund, and then when it goes up a little bit, I should sell it, and then I find something else, and, and that's not what works. That's when people say that investing in stocks is akin to going to Las Vegas, that's the kind of investing that they're talking about, and in my mind, that's not really investing at all. That is indeed gambling. But in my stock series and in my book, I don't talk about gambling. I talk about investing. That means buying the right thing and holding it for a very long time and ignoring the gyrations of the market.
1: Right. Yeah. Ignoring what the media is is pumping out and telling us. Well, like market timing, like it is virtually impossible to pull off. But JL, like, can we be more opportunists, like who pounce and invest a little bit more when the market is experiencing a decline? How hard is that? actually to do you know we we've, we've talked about dollar cost averaging and making sure that we're putting in the same amount regularly but oftentimes like we do in our real life we're tempted to maybe invest a little bit more when you see something on sale what are your thoughts on that towards the stock market
2: the stock market is a strange strange thing in people's minds for some reason because as you say if you were looking to buy a tv and you saw it on sale you'd rush out and say wow now's the time to buy that tv When the market's plunging and stocks are on sale, so to speak, I mean, everybody's too terrified to buy. So absolutely when you are, are investing, if the market drops, uh, you should keep investing, but you shouldn't be waiting for the market to drop, to invest because there's no guarantee the market will drop in 2014. I think it was, I wrote a, a post called investing in a raging bull. Because from 2009, which was the bottom of the last major collapse until 2014, the market had just gone up relentlessly and people were asking, were saying, Oh, it's gotta, it's, there's gotta be another drop. And it's, you know, this is not the time and all this stuff. And, and I just, this week got a comment on the blog from a guy who said, yeah, you know, I saw that when you said 2014 and, but now it's different. And what should I do now? Well, no, it's not different. And it was just <laughs> terrifying for the people in 2014 as it may feel now. Nobody knows what the market's going to do. You hear the pundits all the time saying, oh, the markets, you know, we're at all-time highs and this has been a historically long bull run. Both of those things are true. But what's not true is that means that the market has to drop back tomorrow or next week or this year or next year. I mean, the market could continue to go up for 10 years the market doesn't know or care that it's at an all time high. Now, having said all that, the market absolutely at some point in the future will drop. This is routine. This is, you know, when I say that, that's like saying if you live in the northern part of the country, you're going to have blizzards in winter. I mean, this should surprise no one. That's the nature of the market. And you're, we're going to have 10% corrections, which is what they're called on a very regular basis, less frequently bear markets, which are defined as a 20% decline, crashes much less frequently, but you can expect them if you're, especially if you're a young person, I tell my daughter, she can expect to have another level of 2008, 2009 uh, sometime in her investing career, maybe, maybe more than one That's just a natural part of the process and the right reaction to that is to ignore it because it will go, it will do whatever it does. It will go down as far as it goes down and then it'll go back up and goes back to that post you were talking about. The market always goes up and if some point, by the way, that's not true. If at some point the market drops and doesn't go back up, that means that our economy is permanently collapsed and that our country is on the rocks and then nothing that you've done uh, will protect you unless maybe you've stockpiled guns and canned can goods. And there are people <laughs> who believe that's going to happen, by the way, and they should not be investing in the market if that's your belief.
0: That well, goes back to your first question, Matt. <laughs> Those are the people that should not be investing in the market, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, you, you, to, to invest in the stock market, you to a certain extent, you have to be an optimist. You have to believe a couple of things to follow the path that I've laid out. One is you have to believe the United States is going to continue to be a viable country uh, with a viable economy and that it is going to be a capitalist country where people are creating new companies and new products and new services and and uh, are building new businesses and that we as investors can go along on that ride. If you don't think that's what the future looks like. Uh, if you really think the United States is going to implode or, or something else horrible is going to happen on the world stage, then you don't want to follow my advice.
0: Jail. that brings me to another question we had for you. You're talking about specifically investing in the US stock market here. But you know there are a lot of folks out there who recommend investing internationally and in emerging markets. A lot of the money pros out there encourage people to have money invested overseas in addition to investing in the u.s stock market also so why do you lean so hard towards investing domestically and have you had any change of heart since you first wrote your book
2: yeah so that's a great question and let me start out by saying i i don't oppose investing internationally uh for those people who are so inclined and in fact When I travel overseas and I talk to my international readers, if I were living in any country other than the United States, uh, I would in fact be buying a world fund. And world fund would just, it's like the total world index fund. And there are such things Vanguard offers them. Uh, And that would be my recommendation. You certainly can't be a one country investor in any other country other than the US because They're just not dominant enough. They're not big enough economies. The U S is unique in that it is, and we in the United States can get away with that. And it's been a very profitable path to follow. It's the path that Jack Bogle, who created index funds in Vanguard uh, followed. It's the path that uh, Warren Buffett recommends. Having said all of that, one of the conversations I have with my daughter is that at some point, probably not my lifetime, but in her lifetime, uh, you probably are, even as, as, a, as an American, going to want to move into a world fund. And the reason I say that is that at the end of World War II, the United States was the only industrial country that wasn't left in ashes and rubble. And so not surprisingly, the world economy fundamentally was the U.S., probably 90-plus percent. Of course, the rest of the country, the rest of the countries in the world rebuilt, which is a good thing. And by the way, they rebuilt with a lot of support from the U.S., which is also a good thing. Well, that had two effects. One is that steadily since the end of World War II, the percentage of the pie that the U.S. represents has been shrinking. It's now about 50%. That might sound like a bad thing, but it's not because the size of the pie itself has gotten much, much larger. And the U.S. economy is much, much larger than it was at the end of World War II, but that process is probably going to continue. Where the, as the rest of the world continues to grow and prosper, the pie will get bigger and bigger, but our percentage of it here in the U.S. will will continue to get smaller. And at some point, you know, it's going to make sense even for U.S. citizens to go into a world fund. Right now, I'm comfortable just holding the the U.S. though.
1: Yeah, I can see it becoming yeah, more and more of a global economy right. as uh, the world shrinks right with technology right. and the things that allow us to do business with other countries. GL, in an attempt to kind of make this even easier for folks who want to hit the easy button, there are these target date uh, funds that are, that are out there now. Uh, they've been a massive help to consumers over the years. They provide solid diversification uh, and then automatically become more conservative as uh, folks get older. What, what are your take on those?
2: So I actually, in, in my stock series, I have a post on them and, and there's a chapter in the book about them. Fundamentally, what I say is they're not my first choice, but they're not a bad choice. What I mean by that is is if you read through my stock series or if you read through my book and it makes sense to you and you understand it, it will be less expensive for you in terms of cost just to use the one or two funds that I recommend the total stock market fund or the total bond fund. If you need bonds in your, in your portfolio, those will have the lower expense ratios. And so they will be less costly. If on the other hand, you, you read through those things, the stock series in the book, and you're still left scratching your head. This is just not your thing. It doesn't quite make sense. A target date fund or a life strategy fund, which doesn't adjust as you get older, those those are two great options. They're slightly more expensive than than the path I lay out, but but uh, the path I lay out isn't going to resonate with everybody. It's you know different people understand different subjects better or less well than others, and so again, if you read my stuff and you find yourself scratching your head saying. Yeah, I'm still not quite getting it. A target date fund is a great option.
0: Cool. That's great advice. Uh, All right, JL, we got more questions that we want to cover with you, including we want to talk about your new car, which is named Steve. (laughs) And we'll get to that right after the break. Steve 2.0. Oh, Steve 2.0. That's right.
3: Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super-serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best-fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories,
1: Go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial.
0: All right, we're back from break, and we're talking with JL Collins, author of The Simple Path to Wealth. We just covered a lot of good stuff on when it comes to investing, but JL, you had a a great post recently about buying a new car, and you know, in the personal finance community, buying a new car can be considered kind of a financial faux pas. (laughs) So, (laughs) why did you make that decision against the advice of every other personal finance blogger out there?
2: Well, uh, a couple of things. One, we sort of touched this on, I touched on this in the beginning of the conversation. Money is relative, right? So my new car, uh, a Subaru Forester, costs slightly less than $25,000 by the time I paid title and taxes and all that stuff. And $25,000 for me at this point in my life is a f- very modest amount of money. When I was younger and poorer, I wouldn't have been buying a new car. I would have been buying a two or three or $5,000 car. And that would have been interestingly enough, the equivalent amount of money. In fact, it would have been significantly more, bigger expenditure than, than this new car that we just bought. So that's the first point I would make. The second point that I think is really interesting is I'm kind of a, you know, money nerd and I like spreadsheets and I like tracking stuff. So I've had a lot of cars over the years and I've kept spreadsheets for all of them. And the last Subaru, which we also bought new in 2007, and we just uh, sold this past fall when we got, uh, that was Steve and and we got Steve 2.0. And uh, when I look back at the spreadsheet and I look at my costs, it's really interesting that The actual annual cost of Steve, the first Subaru, it varied a lot year to year, but it didn't get cheaper as Steve got older. Now I track a couple of key things that go into that. Number one is depreciation. Number two is maintenance and repair. And number three is opportunity cost because I pay cash for my cars. So I've got capital tied up. So in the early years, the big expenses are depreciation and opportunity cost As every year, you know, the value of the car drops. And so I readjust the opportunity cost to reflect that lower value because now it's only that much that's tied up. And then as you, as those costs start to drop, the maintenance and repair costs start to rise. And it is remarkable to me that The most expensive year, and I don't have the spreadsheet in front of me, but the most expensive year of owning Steve was one of the later years, not one of the early years. And some of the least expensive years were later years when, you know, some years you have little or no repairs. But there's not a huge amount of difference. Now, having said all of that, if you're at the beginning of your financial journey, you should not be buying new cars. (laughs) You should be out buying very cheap, old cars and, and, uh, running them as cheaply as you can. That's what I did, but when you get to a certain level of financial independence, buying a new car is, is not, and there's a couple of caveats I have to put in here, buying a new car, the way I buy a new car is, is not as big a financial faux pas as it might, as the common wisdom in the FI community suggests. Now, the caveats are I buy the base model of the car. I don't buy the fancy models because I like simplicity. So I'm buying it at the low end of the price spectrum. That means my depreciation is less because I'm starting at a, at a lower number. I'm not buying luxury cars, which depreciate much more aggressively than a car like a, like a Forester or a Honda Accord or a Civic or a Camry or something like that. But It depends on where you are financially for us spending $25,000 on a car is not a, is not a big deal.
1: Yeah, well, JL on that. You, you know, you mentioned how you actually purchased the vehicle. Let's let's talk through like the mechanics of that purchase. You had some great advice in another post there about actually purchasing Steve 2.0. <laughs> the traditional way of buying from a dealer is is pretty crappy, but like some of the more modern ways don't necessarily get you the best price. So, can you share with our listeners uh, what your tactic was?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, I'm, I uh, I the caveat that I'm not an expert in buying cars. You know, I don't buy them all that often. But what I did, and I think it worked out pretty well, avoids going into the dealership and having them wear you down. And and then you make bad decisions because you're tired and you just want to get it over with. So what we did is when I started thinking about getting a new car, I began reading and researching, did I want to get another Forester or did I want to get something else? And So I did a lot of basic research on that. And then as I began to think more and more that another Forester made sense because we like the first one and it fits our needs, we went and test drove the Forester. And we did that last spring just before we left. We spent last spring, summer, and fall in Europe because we're we're nomadic, we travel a lot. So I test drove it knowing that I wasn't going to buy it car at that point, because I was about to leave the country for half a year. But the test drive sort of confirmed that, yeah, this is the car that, that we probably want. And, and when uh, we got back to the U.S., I sent around an email to, I think, five dealers that, that were close enough that I'd be willing to travel to pick up a car. And I basically said, this is what I'm looking for. And, uh, you know, I'd like a, like a price from you. And this, by the way, my actual email is in, is in, uh, I did three posts on the car and anybody who is interested can go to the blog and they can see the actual email. And one dealer didn't respond at all. Three others responded asking all kinds of questions because they, they don't want to play the game the way I want to play it. Um, so you just have to bring them back to to square one saying what you're looking for. And then one woman in particular was right on top of it. Over the course of going back and forth with emails, I eliminated two of the dealers and, and was down to the one woman and this other uh, guy And who was actually in the closer dealership and wound up offering a slightly lower price. But Jackie, the woman who had just been so responsive right from the beginning, her price was very competitive and I just liked the way she Handled herself, and I felt comfortable that when I actually walked into the dealer to do the to do the deal, that there would be less chance of shenanigans at that point. So that's what I did. I didn't even take the lowest offer, as it turned out.
0: Yeah, well, I love the script too that you made available to everyone who is shopping for a new car using that to email a few different dealerships in your area. That's super smart. Plus, isn't that what you want to avoid? Just like you said, Jay, like the shenanigans, like
1: any sort of last minute twists and turns and things they try to slide in there. Like that's, I feel like that's kind of the, that's the things that I want to, those are the kind of things I want to avoid in my life.
2: And you're always gonna, you know, and this dealership was no different. I mean, they They're always going to turn you over to the financial person and they're always going to try to upsell you warranties and, you know, all kinds of little extras that you just say no to. I think if you go in with the right attitude and and, uh, I forget the guy's name, who was the finance guy at this particular dealership, it became pretty evident that I wasn't going to buy any of these things. And, And, you know, we had fun with it and that made it go a little bit, a little bit more quickly.
0: Yeah. Hey, JL, you've mentioned a couple of times that you and your wife are living a nomadic lifestyle right now. So like, what does that look like for you guys at this point in time? And and where are you talking to us from now?
2: Right now, I'm in Tucson, Arizona. We are staying with some friends of ours that we met at one of the Chautauquas that I run. And uh, that's one of the great things about Chautauqua is we meet people all over the world and and, uh, we get to become friends with them.
0: And can you explain what that is, real quick?
2: Yeah, Chautauqua is a, is an event that it's a week long event that I created in 2013, where we bring uh, four speakers in. I'm one of the four uh, from the FI community, and we limit the group to uh, 29 people, so we have a small intimate group, and we hang out for a week together, uh, talking about money and life and investing and whatever else comes up. It's some cool part of the world. It's some cool resort and uh, we eat good food and have a good time the bonds that uh, people create not just with me and the other speakers but with their fellow attendees are incredible businesses have been launched out of those friendships and connections and and uh, deep friendships and so anyway i was talking to alan Donigan, who uh, uh, organizes these things in europe for me and Know he's also nomadic now, and he's saying, you know, it's this is such a great part of Chautauqua is we have this ever expanding group of uh, really cool friends that we've had opportunity to meet. Yeah, that's Chautauqua. So at the moment we are, uh, well, as I as I alluded to earlier, over last spring, summer, and fall, we were in Europe, and that's because we did a Chautauqua in England in the spring, then we did two in uh, Portugal in the fall, and. My wife and I just stayed in Europe uh, between those two, and then when we came back to the U.S., as I say, we uh, bought Steve Point Two, and so we're traveling around the we're traveling in the car around the U.S. for these six seven months, whatever it is, mainly avoiding winter.
1: So, I mean, is is that the reason, uh, Jail, like behind this sort of nomadic (laughs) lifestyle, is just being able to go wherever it's nice, wherever it's warm? Because I'll I'll say from personal experience. I would have a tough time, I think, kind of live, you know, living life like that. I'm I'm very much a homebody. Like my wife and I, maybe there'll be a season of our life when we're traveling a whole lot, but we can also very much see ourselves in the the house that we currently live in, <laughs> you know, being a part of our community here. But yeah, what is it about that nomadic lifestyle that you are drawn to?
2: Yeah, I, that's that's a tough question because I, you know, my wife and I have always loved traveling, and uh, and for the most part, we have not been nomadic. I mean, when our daughter was young, we had a house. and uh, uh, But the moment she went off to uh, college, we put the house on the market and went back to renting. And then at one point, you know, it occurred to me that this apartment, and we rent at nice places, and, but it occurred to me with as much traveling as we do, that apartment was expensive storage most of the year. And that didn't make any sense. So we let the lease run out and we we went fully nomadic and, and we have friends who have done that. It's certainly not for everybody. I mean, one of the people that we've uh, had a chance to visit with on this trip was a old high school friend of mine who uh, has lived in Taos in New Mexico for uh, the last 50 years. And you mentioned you're a homebody. Well, he's very much a homebody. He's been in the same house for a long time. He's put deep roots down in the community in Taos. He's actually a, on the city council of Taos at the moment. I don't think he's ever traveled outside of the US. And that's great. I mean that's a perfectly legitimate way to live his a life. And and he's at, he's had a great life, a very satisfying life. It's not the life I would choose, but on the other hand, my life is you know not the life he would choose. So, you know, there's that's one of the beautiful things about life is we get to make it whatever we want it to be and if you're comfortable and prefer to to put down deep roots and stay in one place there's there's nothing at all wrong with that and there's a lot right with it i probably won't be your neighbor <laughs>
0: <laughs> not moving to atlanta anytime soon huh at,
2: at least at least not for more than a couple of weeks
0: <laughs> all right well you're welcome in your during your nomadic journeys to come stay with us at some point in atlanta if you want to
2: yeah we have we have several friends in atlanta we should uh, we'll put that on the list
0: yeah, you've got two more now and
1: you can swing by and we'll actually have one of these beers for you here in person so we can definitely share one next
0: time.
2: <laughs> ah, that's 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 uh, I I you know you better be careful with the offers because I'm the kind of person who actually shows up.
0: <laughs> hey, we're the kind of people that love it when you show up. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All right, man. So, sounds good.
0: Well, JL, this has been a great conversation, uh, wide ranging. We talked a lot about investing, buying a new car. I mean, just so much great advice. Thank you so much for joining us. And for anybody out there who wants to read more of the things that you've written and, and find out more about you, where should they go?
2: So the blog is JLCollinsNH.com. And if you go there, uh, you'll find the stock series that we've talked about. You'll find all the other posts that I've written about the car and various other things. In fact, if you look at the right hand column, there's a list of categories to help you sort through it all. And then if you're interested in the book, there's a link to the book that will take you over to Amazon and you can, you can look at the reviews on that. uh, What I suggest to people is get the book from the library. If you're a book person, certainly read a little bit of the stock series before you buy the book, because if you don't like the stock series, you're not going to like the book. (laughs) And there is nothing. The other thing I will say, by the way, is there's nothing in the book that is not on the blog. And that was by design. I was given advice uh, to do the very opposite. Uh, When I was writing the book, people were saying, you know, you need to put things in the book that are not on your blog. So people have to buy the book. And I thought, well, that's kind of a crappy thing to do to my readers who have given me the opportunity, basically, to write the book. I'm not going to do that. What I will say is the book is a little more concise. It's better organized. I won't say that the writing's more polished. I will say I spent more time polishing it, so I'll leave it to readers to decide whether I succeeded.
1: Awesome, J.L. This has been fantastic. Thanks again
0: for joining us on the podcast. It's been
2: entirely my pleasure.
0: All right, Matt. I love me some J.L. Collins. That was a great conversation. The guy's been around a long time, and he's got a lot of wisdom in that noggin of his. Yeah, he, and he also has an amazing voice. I mean, that's not something we kind of warned our listeners
1: about. Uh, he's got this kind of James Earl Jones-esque voice. Right. I don't know much about uh, vocal composition, but is it a baritone? He's kind of got that rich, nice
0: tone. Puts our crummy podcasting <laughs> voice is a shame, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and he actually uh, told us before the episode that he was a touch under the weather. So really appreciate him still joining us for the show. And I think you could hear it a touch in his voice, but it's still a golden voice, right? Most F. All right. But uh, I wanted to ask you, Matt, what was your big takeaway from our conversation with JL?
1: Well, man, my big takeaway is something that JL said right towards the beginning of our conversation. And it hit me like a ton of bricks and it kind of kept rattling around my my empty brain <laughs> the rest of the conversation but like it just it just resonated with me it, it stuck with me and that's when he was talking about uh, raising his daughter when we were talking about our kids and he said basically like we don't have a lot of capacity to make our kids great but we definitely can really mess them up <laughs> right and and what he was getting at there was just focusing on those few things but then like essentially almost not worrying about the kind of tiny stuff that you might nitpick. And as someone who is very detail-oriented, as someone like JL who likes spreadsheets, you kind of fixate on the details, right? Like so much of life is in the details. And so when it comes to raising kids, I think I get caught up in all of those details, in all of those tiny things. But a lot of times, like with investing, it's good to make sure that you have the essentials figured out, that you've laid a great foundation, and then maybe not worry about everything else quite as much. Yeah, it's great
0: advice. All right, so my big takeaway was that... I hope Jake- yours is investing-related, by the way, because it- mine kind of was like parenting-related. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, yeah, I thought A he, little bit of investing. He was pretty modest when it came to his thoughts on raising a thoughtful child. But I feel like he doesn't have to be because honestly, I think he had some great wisdom to share, even though he did kind of couch it in right? feeling like he didn't. But yeah, I think my big takeaway from this episode was that doomsday preppers should not be investing. <laughs> and I think that's the thing that caught my ear the most was that optimism is such an important part of investing. And we've talked about financial optimism before on yes. the show, Matt. And I think you know I'm naturally optimistic, but I also think that... The more and more that we tune into the financial media, the more that we read the headlines, the more that we're watching CNBC on a regular basis, it's easy to, to let those things seep into our brains. It's easy to get pessimistic about the future, the immediate future and potentially the overall future. And when you t- take a step back and you look at kind of where we've come as humanity over the past decades, the past century uh, or two we've made a lot of progress and there's a lot to be thankful for. There's a lot to be proud of. And I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. And so as people who are investing, having that optimistic viewpoint is crucial. And I think being optimistic actually lends itself to helping us behaviorally Stay invested, even when things around us are all kind of going a little crazy. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Just like JL said, like even though there's gyrations in the market, like you just got to ride it out, and like the
0: market is always going to go up, no doubt. All right, Matt. Let's get back to the beer we had on the show today. We had the Bourbon County Stout by Goose Island. Listener Alex sent this one our way. What were your thoughts on this beer, buddy? Well, first of all, this is one of those really special beers, right? Like they come out with this every year. Black Friday on Black Friday. Oh, is
1: it? Is that when they release it? Yeah, every oh. every Black Friday, that's when they release this, these beers up there in Chicago well that's at least where the brewery is from uh alex is out of illinois as well so yeah alex thank you so much for this beer so stinking good it's, it's a little bit higher in abv but it had this nice warming effect it was roasty almost like coffee but there's no coffee in this stout right it's not an adjunct stout uh, which means that it's a pure stout it's asian bourbon barrels yeah none but, of the extras thrown in yeah exactly but it still had just so much stinking flavor it kind of had like those coffee-ish notes even though it didn't have that going on but it also had the sweetness uh that i kind of likened to creme brulee yeah just like this nice toasted kind of vanilla-y flavor going on there on the tail end that rounded out that beer with some of that sweetness this was a phenomenal stout
0: that we got to enjoy here as we're kind of reaching the end of winter yeah and in my mind the best beers matt are often the ones that taste like they have some sort of extra uh, thing put in there right like an ipa that tastes super fruity in this beautiful way but there's no fruit in there's it. no juice in it it's literally it's just <laughs> they, they got that flavor because of fantastic hops yes or a great stout that because of the malts they used and the way that they aged it and the way that they brewed it it just has it's it's packed with all these flavors and you're just assuming that they put other things into the beer but they didn't and i feel like that's what this stout had exactly had kind of these toffee vanilla caramel tones and it, it was delicious, not overly sweet, really good beer. It's a, I mean, it's a classic at this point, the Goose Island, Bourbon County series. They've been pumping out great beers for a long time now. And this one is just as good as the first ones I've had from them in this in this line. Yeah, Joel, so true. I could not agree with you anymore, man. Well, that is going to be it for this episode. Uh, our listeners, you can find our show notes up on our website at howtomoney.com. Yeah. And if you like our show and you haven't left a review yet, well, we'd appreciate it if you would take a minute or two and do that. You can do that at Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And Matt and I, we'd really appreciate it. It helps get the word out to other potential personal finance nerds. We're always excited to reach more people with a message of financial empowerment. All right, buddy, that's going to do it for this episode. Until next time, best friends out. Best friends out. marketing.com
3: it's brand new season two i'm marissa thalberg and i'm Stephen wolf and we're excited to be back having bigger bolder and always real conversations straight from the c-suite front lines of marketing media and more
1: we have great friends joining from people you may know like wilmer valderrama
3: and bobby burke and people you'll want to know so grab a coffee or hey even an aperol spritz and come join us on america's number one podcast network iheart Listen to Brand New on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.